This morning, the message that I have for you is taken from verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, where we read, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah wrote this portrait of the servant of the Lord 700 years before the first Good Friday. But there is no more accurate picture in the whole of the Old Testament than we have here. The Gospels in the New Testament describe the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, but this chapter goes into such great detail about what it was that our Lord Jesus went through on that day. With the benefit of the four Gospels, and also remembering that there was an occasion when an African official was on his way home to Ethiopia in his chariot, reading a scroll that presumably he had purchased while he was in Jerusalem, that this African official happened to be reading this chapter. And as he read this chapter, he didn't know who the prophet was speaking about. Was he speaking about himself? Was Isaiah speaking about himself in talking about the sufferings of this servant? Or was Isaiah speaking about somebody else? But we know that the Holy Spirit had already directed Philip the evangelist to go to that road that led down, that desert road that led down to Gaza. And he came alongside that chariot and heard the Ethiopian official reading out loud these words in Isaiah 53. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless someone explains it to me? So Philip was invited up into that chariot and starting with this very passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Because this chapter is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. We can begin in any verse in this chapter and it will speak to us about the Lord Jesus. More than that, every single verse in this chapter speaks specifically about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So during this chapter we have read about his physical sufferings. And we must remind ourselves that when our Lord Jesus was on that cross and before he went to the cross, there were physical sufferings that he endured. We're told that he was a man of sorrows and he was familiar with sufferings in verse 3. We're told in verse 5 that he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions. 
And we remember the crown of thorns that the Lord Jesus had pressed into his head. We must not think that those soldiers were gentle when they placed that crown of thorns with those huge sharp thorns onto the head of our Lord Jesus. And he was stabbed in the side with the spear. We're told that he was crushed, bruised in verse 5 as well. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. That word crushed or bruised speaks of someone who was badly beaten. The Lord Jesus was beaten with rods. He was bruised by the great weight of the cross that was placed on his shoulder. We're told of his wounds in verse 5 as well. The piercings, the lacerations, the nails in his hands. The Lord Jesus endured the most terrible physical sufferings. And they're all here in Isaiah 53. But that wasn't the only suffering that our Lord endured. It wasn't just physical. The Lord also suffered injustice. And those in our world who have suffered injustice feel that as a great weight of suffering. And the injustice of the Lord Jesus' sufferings are here as well, aren't they? Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. This sense of oppression against Jesus, pressure upon him, stress upon him, people against him, afflicting him for no true reason. We're told in verse 8 that it was by oppression and judgment that he was taken away. And we know that this was a, a false judgment. It was misjudgment. It was a trial that was completely unorthodox and unlawful. The injustice of all that Jesus faced as he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as we read in verse 7. And even that is not the full weight of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. We discover the agonies of rejection. There's one thing that, that all of us perhaps fear and may have experienced is this sense of rejection in some area or other. And it's very painful. Emotionally, it is a terrible thing. Mentally, it's an awful thing to be rejected. We're told that the Lord Jesus grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. His beginnings weren't promising. He grew up in a culture and in an area where things were dry spiritually. But he grew up there as a little green shoot, as a little root. Even as a young child and as a young man, the Lord Jesus wasn't considered to be that important. And then he wasn't attractive by the world standards. He had no beauty or no majesty to attract us to him. His majesty was veiled, wasn't it, when he came into the world. He was the son of the living God. And yet when he came into this world, he, he came as a man who, who wasn't particularly physically attractive. He had an attraction in his person, in his character, but few saw that. 
no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Verse 2. No, he was actually despised and rejected by men. The sufferings and the agonies of rejection of our Lord Jesus are all here in this passage. All the terrible sufferings of our Lord Jesus. On that Good Friday, the Lord was left all alone. Everyone deserted him. Every one of his close friends, his small band of disciples, all of them just deserted him and fled. And then he was rejected by the Jewish leaders and by the Roman leaders, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and all the people with one voice crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Such was a terrible weight of rejection towards our Lord Jesus. And when we read a chapter like this, we must stop and ask the question, why? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to suffer? Why did he go through all of that? Why did the Father allow it? Why did the Heavenly Father, who we're told loved his Son, why did he allow all of this to happen? Why didn't Jesus get rescued? And the answer to that question is found in verse 10. And if we don't understand this answer and grasp it and hold to it, we're going to go down all sorts of paths that are wrong. We're going to end up in the rock of error, as so many people have when they've thought about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But verse 10 gives us the answer. Why? Why did all this happen? We find in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He suffered because the Father decided that he should. He suffered because it was the will of the Father. He suffered because the Father caused it to happen. Not just allowed it to happen, but caused it to happen. Now we cannot naturally understand this or appreciate its significance. So we need to understand what is being said here. We need light and understanding from heaven if we're ever going to grasp this great and terrible truth, but it's here. We need to ask the Lord to open our eyes that we might understand these things. Just as that Ethiopian official in his chariot said, well, how can I understand these things unless someone explains them to me? So Philip, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was able to explain these things. We have to say with the hymn writer, oh, make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sins. Teach me, Saviour, teach me the value of a soul. And so this verse is telling us that the sufferings of the Lord Jesus were the will of God. Sufferings 
of the Lord Jesus were the will of God. In fact, in some versions of our Bible, it sounds even stronger than this. And this translation, I notice, has been dropped by all the modern versions of the Bible. And perhaps we can understand why. But if you go back to your King James Version, you will read this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You find the same in the New King James. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now we live in a society that shrinks back from that idea completely and cannot understand it and immediately jumps to all sorts of conclusions about a father and a son. How can it please the Lord to bruise him? What a thing to say. And most of the modern versions will have something like, it was the Lord's will. And, and we can understand that sort of translation, can't we? We may think it's all part of the 16th, 17th century language of the older versions of the Bible. If it pleased your majesty, meaning if that's what you want, if that's your will, if it please you. Because we use the word slightly differently, don't we? we? We use the word please to mean something you delight in. But you know, that's exactly what the word means here. It's exactly what it means. It was the Lord's delight to crush him, to bruise him. What does that mean? How can the Lord God be pleased to see his son crushed and suffering in the ways that this chapter has described? How can he cause him to suffer, put him to grief, make him feel weak and, and feeble and sick, inflict such a deadly wound? The cross was a deadly wound inflicted on Jesus. No recovery was ever expected or possible from crucifixion. What father would be pleased to see his son, his only son, crushed and suffering? Surely this is barbaric. Doesn't he love his son? And you see how easily believers can go down a road and fall into terrible error. And in the end they say, no, 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 we misunderstand the sufferings of Jesus completely. It wasn't something that the Father willed. It wasn't something that God determined. It wasn't the will of the Father, they say. This was wicked people. This is the evidence of the wickedness and the sinfulness of human beings. This is why Jesus suffered. It wasn't the Lord's will, they say. It couldn't be. No father could want that to happen to their own son. But of course, when we're saying that, we're... We are not understanding the word of God. We're not understanding the relationship. And supremely, we're not understanding the seriousness of human sin. We're not taking anything away from the wickedness of the people who put Jesus to death. We're not taking anything away from those who, suffer, who made him suffer on earth. They were guilty. And those who pierced him will one day see him coming again in glory. They are guilty. They are wicked people for doing that. But it was the Lord's will. Does he love his son? Of course he does. 
Throughout his life on earth, the father constantly assured his son that he loved him. At the baptism, at the transfiguration, we even read the Lord Jesus when he speaks about being the shepherd of the sheep and he talks about the fact that uh, the father loves him. Just as a father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, he says. He loves he loves the Father. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. That's significant. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. John 10 verse 17. In fact, this whole incident of the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus is part of the great love that the Father has for the Son. How can that be true, we say? How can that be true? Well, because what we're being told here in this verse is it is all part of the will and the pleasure of God. It's not wicked human beings who ultimately were in control of what was happening on Good Friday. It was God who was in control. And the Lord Jesus himself, who was very much in control of what was happening, the Father willed that the Son should give his life, and the Son was willing to give his life. And that was the only way that we could be redeemed. It was the only way. It was the way that was planned before the creation of the world. It was the Lord's will that these things should happen. And if you think about it, there must be a very, very serious reason for that. Something quite dreadful must have made this necessary. If there was another way, the Father would have found that other way. There was something that was absolutely essential for Jesus to be able to have to do this. And we're told that in our verse. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. That's it. His life was made a guilt offering. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the elders of the people came and laid their hands on an animal. And they confessed their sins over that animal. They confessed the sins of all the people of Israel and then the animal was slaughtered sacrificed it was taken and it was put on the altar and it died for the sins of the people in the place of sinners and that's what it means here by Jesus becoming a guilt offering that's what it means in verse 6 the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just as those elders of Israel put their hands on that animal and confessed their sins, they were symbolically transferring the guilt to the animal and then the animal died instead of them. And that's what's being said here. Isaiah sees all of this by the Holy Spirit's inspiration 700 years before it ever happened. And Isaiah sees that the servant of the Lord is going to be made a guilt offering. And before we turn away in disgust and accuse your mighty God of, of uh, cosmic child abuse, as someone has put it, against his own son, let's remember what the consequences of our sins are and what would happen 
if we did not have a guilt offering. Because there's no way that those animals in the Old Testament could ever take away sins. It needed to be someone far greater than an animal to take away our sins. But Jesus is that far greater one. The Son of the living God. The almighty second person of the triune God in human form, taking on her human body and then going to the cross and willingly dying for us. And if your sins and my sins are left undealt with, they must be borne by us. We are the guilty ones. And our sins will carry us down into the deepest hell if they are not dealt with. We will be punished forever, and justly so, if we do not have a guilt offering. And that's why it was the Lord's will to crush him. That's why it was a plan and purpose and even in a sense of delight of God. We must not understand by that that the Lord was somehow delighted to inflict suffering on his son. That would be a dreadful thing. Of course it would. That's not what it means. It means the Lord himself was delighted with the sacrifice of his son. It pleased him. It satisfied him. It was the way of salvation. It was the only way of salvation. Only this one sacrifice for sins can ever prove our God to be just and the one who justifies sinners. And that's the problem. If we can put it like that, that's the problem. How can God remain absolutely perfectly right and just And at the same time, how can he justify sinners? He can't do both of those things, can he? How can he be righteous and yet say to a sinner, oh, all your sins are forgiven? He can't do that. Unless he finds a way, a way where someone who is perfect takes the guilt and satisfies divine justice. And that's exactly what happened at the cross of Calvary. You still think it's barbaric? Well, look at yourself and closely examine your heart. See your heart's great deceitfulness and rebellion, its wickedness and its sin. And now look at the justice of God. How will you ever stand before a just and holy God whose laws you have broken? What other remedy for sin is there? Your guilt must be taken by someone, either by you or by the Lord Jesus Christ. No animal is equal to that task. Only the pure son of the living God could bear your sin and my sin. So it was the Lord's will to crush him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And all the fruits of salvation come to us through the suffering of Jesus. All the fruits of salvation, everything that you and I can ever possess before God, come to us through the sufferings of Jesus. Some deaths are fruitful, aren't they, in a measure in a little way. You you know, we see it so often and we understand perfectly that when... 
a family loses a loved one, perhaps in tragic circumstances or perhaps through, through some terrible illness, they want to make sure that that life means something. That's why we have so many charities set up and foundations set up in, in the name of someone. Because the family want to make some significance. They often say, I don't want anyone else to go through what I've been through. And so we do find that there is often fruit that comes even out most tragic deaths. Any of you who have ever, ever done any training in first aid and resuscitation will know that every time you are given one of those little dummies, uh, to practice on. Thankfully, they don't let you practice on real human beings. And you've got to do the compressions and you've got to breathe into the mouth. You'll know that every one of those dummies is called Annie. You say, why is every one of those dummies called Annie? Well, Annie was just the name that was given to the, to the dummies. But what happened is that when this man decided, his name was Peter Saffar in Paris, and he decided that it would be really helpful to have a, a sort of dummy, a doll, to practice on. So he, he went and found a, uh, a, a toy maker. Toy maker was called Asmund Lardau. And Asmund decided that this dummy needed a face. And in Paris at the time, in all of the gift shops, you could buy this mask. And it was a mask that was made from the face, sadly, of a young lady who jumped into the Seine. And uh, she died, she drowned. But she was so beautiful that someone in the morgue decided to make a mask of her face, a very serene face in death. Perhaps she hadn't known that serenity in life. And, and then it became quite a popular um, thing for people to buy in the gift shops. And Asmund Ladell saw this and he said, that's exactly what I want. And so every single dummy that you use to practice on is part of the fruit of that poor young lady's death. But how much more the death of Jesus brought fruit? He will see his offspring, we're told in verse 10. He will see his offspring. There will be fruit as a result of Jesus' death. What is that fruit? Well, you are and I am. The church of Jesus Christ is. Everyone who belongs to Christ because of his death, everyone whose faith and trust is in him, is part of the fruit of the death of the Lord Jesus. As he said on one occasion, the grain of wheat had to fall into the ground and die, but then it bears much fruit. And so he sees his offspring. He sees the fruit. And he will prolong his days as well. Yes, he rose again. And he lives forever and ever. His kingdom will never end. Death could not hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. He lives forever and ever. And Isaiah speaks here about after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. And, verse 10 again, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God the Father entrusted everything to Jesus. And he was confident that his son would succeed and that salvation would be gained through the death and sufferings of the Son of God. His hands were safe hands. You and I could never achieve our own salvation. If God the Father entrusted us to it to us, we could never do it. The Lord God looked for a man, and there was none. So he provided one himself, his only dearly beloved son. 
to save us. And the will of the Lord prospered in the hand of Jesus. Are you resting on Christ and on his sufferings this morning? Are you trusting in him and him alone? Have you got rid of any sense of your own righteousness, your own abilities, your own innate goodness? Get rid of it all. You have none at all. The Lord Jesus alone is the one who can save you. There is no other way. Trust nothing and no one else with your soul for all of eternity. And never make the mistake that somehow the Lord God was wringing his hands in desperation and deep sadness that he could do nothing about the death of his son. That is foolishness. The Lord God planned and purposed it all and it was his will to crush him because your sins and my sins, your guilt and my guilt demanded nothing short than the sufferings and the death of the Son of God. And the prospering of the church is only possible because of the cross. All attempts to grow the church and to see increase apart from the cross are doomed to fail. Only the preaching of the crucified Christ and the risen Lord will ensure fruit. We must cling to the cross and preach Christ alone for salvation. May God bless his word to our hearts. There is only one possible hymn, isn't there? When we come to the end of Isaiah and chapter 53, 263. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree, then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. We ask, O Lord our God, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us all evermore. Amen.